one of you, I'm not going to say who, but the husband of someone presented to me a gift that their wife had made for me in response to last week's sermon, which of course was all about Star Trek. You remember that, right? I know Chris was really disappointed because he stepped over to the other building and missed that. But this was an awesome gift. Again, I'm not going to say who, but look at what I got given. This wonderful key ring that says, just Kirk it. You like that? Chris, you can't have it. I'm sorry. This isn't mine. Uh, Clearly, that person was more of a Kirk than a Spock. So thank you to you. I'm very grateful for that. I'm excited to see what the response this week is. Uh, If you're wondering what kind of car I like the most, I will let you know. (laughs) Just ask me after the service. Uh, But this week, I want to talk about a different TV show. Again, apologies, Chris. I could have spent weeks just preaching on Star Trek, obviously, but I will not be doing that. This week, I want to talk about a different TV show that's really big with teenagers right now, which, unfortunately, I don't think Star Trek is. Is. This is the show that's been a huge hit on Netflix for a few years now. Uh, anyone want to guess what it's called? Yeah, Stranger Things, absolutely. Uh, I know some teenagers in my house who are big fans of that. Maybe their parents are too. And uh, it's a show that's all about the supernatural. And uh, let me give you a little, if you haven't, well, who has seen Stranger Things? Okay, we got about maybe a third or so. In case you haven't seen Stranger Things, and I'm not necessarily advocating you watch it, uh, but you can if you want to. Um, It's set in this fictional rural town of Hawkins, Indiana. Just think small town America, okay? And it's during the 1980s, so you can imagine it is a fantastic nostalgia fest for those of you who grew up in the 80s, okay? There are all kinds of references and bikes that you'll see and games that kids play that are just, just brings you back. Well, in the nearby Hawkins National Laboratory, which seems to be doing scientific research for the United States Department of Energy, actually what they're secretly doing is experiments into the paranormal and the supernatural, including those that involve human test subjects. And inadvertently, they create this portal to an alternate dimension, which is called... The Upside Down, thank you. And the influence of the Upside Down starts to affect these unknowing rural residents of Hawkins. They have no idea what's going on, but all kinds of bad things start to happen. But really, the stars of the show are not adults. It's this gang of friends who begin, I guess, around about they're 10, 11 years old in the first season. Now we're through to, I think we just finished season four, and they've turned to teenagers now. And we're watching this gang of friends as they start to investigate all these supernatural things that have been taking place in their town and saving the world as they do. Well, what's the upside down? Well, the upside down is this world that's created where um, there are all these paranormal creatures. And at first, there's no connection between these two worlds, our world and the upside down. But now there's this gate through which these creatures can enter in and actually humans can go through the other way as well. And in the upside down, it's actually a mirror image of this world, except it's a very dark place where everything is covered in these creepy looking vines and you get this place, uh, there's all these kind of spores and membranes and it's devoid of human life and it's a very dark place. And so, as you can see, it's kind of a world that is the opposite of what our world would be. And I share that today because today we're going to be talking about an upside down kind of world. Not necessarily a dark place, but a place of light and a place of goodness. You see, what we'll see today is that when the gospel is proclaimed, the world is turned 
upside down. When the gospel is proclaimed, the world is turned upside down, both for individuals and for whole cultures. We see the apostles uh, doing this 2,000 years ago, but that has had an impact that has rippled throughout our world for the last 2,000 years. And it's meant that people understand now that they can be saved from sin. They can be set free from things like addictions. And that it's helped to bring an end, not an end, but it's helped to bring about um, hopefully the hope for change where it comes to things like sexism or racism. It's uh, helping bring an end to infanticide, to greed, all these things. That is the kind of rippling effect that this has had turning the world upside down over the last 2,000 years. So why don't we turn to our scriptures and take a look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. This is our passage for today. And we're studying this because we're in the middle of a sermon series called Outward Bound. Well, I say the middle. We're actually coming into land. We've only got a couple more weeks. We've been going through Acts this summer. And Acts is a book that you'll find immediately after the Gospels. So we get the story of Jesus' life. And then we have Jesus ascend. And then we see what happens after that in the immediate 20 or 30 or so years after that as the early church is formed. That's what we've been doing this past summer, if you've missed it. And the book is called The Acts of the Apostles. But really, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. It is the Holy Spirit who is bringing about all these incredible things that are happening. And if you remember last week, Paul headed somewhere for the first time. Do you remember where he took the gospel for the first time? Someone said it. Yeah, Europe. He took it to the European continent for the first time. One of the apostles actually lands in Europe and shares the gospel. And he's on his second missionary journey. And I want to pull up a map because I love maps. I don't know if you love maps, but I'm just one of those people who loves maps. So, all right, you've got it here and here. Hopefully it's big enough that you can see. So Paul has started way down here in Jerusalem. There was a council where he met with Peter, if you remember that. He's gone all the way up to Damascus, Antioch. There they separate. There's kind of an argument with John Mark and Barnabas and so on. And, And so they head on, Paul and Barnabas, uh, divided, but Paul and Silas continue all the way through what we would know as Turkey now, and eventually they get to uh, Mysia, and they uh, want to go north to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit stops them. Remember that part from last week? And they just can't do it. And so they carry on to Troas and they catch a ship that takes them across into Europe and to Greece or Macedonia where they land in Neapolis and they walk the eight miles or so to Philippi. And that's where we were last week. And Paul was sharing the gospel there. And do you remember what he did first when he got there? You remember? Where did he head to? It was kind of the synagogue, right? There wasn't a synagogue there. So he went where? Yeah, to the water, because that's where you would meet. If you couldn't have a synagogue or didn't have a synagogue, you would meet down by the river. And he finds the Jewish people worshipping down there. Well, now he's headed on, having converted Lydia and a whole family and started a church in Philippi, basically. And he's headed on. He's going through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he gets to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is probably about a 100 miles from Philippi. And then, as we'll see today, he heads on down to Berea, another 50 miles. And then finally, all the way down to Athens, which is another few hundred miles down there. And what we're going to see in these two short stories is that there is a system in Paul's mind to how he's going to do things. There's a pattern emerging that he's learning, something that works. Now, I don't know about you, but besides loving maps, I'm also a systems guy. I love it when systems work, right? It really frustrates me when systems or processes don't work. Anyone else feel like that? Yeah, you just want to solve it, right? You're like, I could fix this if they would just give me the power. I could fix it, right? Uh, one of those systems that wasn't working in my first few years here on Daniel Island was this junction right here. Do you remember? Anyone remember what used to be at this junction right here? Yes. What was it? Do you remember? 
Yeah, there was like uh, lights, right? They had traffic lights there, okay? And um, it was a four-way, you know, so on and so forth. And many was the time I would sit there for about two minutes while no cars went through the junction, right? Thinking, why am I sitting here waiting for no cars, right? When they could solve this with a very simple solution. The other issue was, before I got into the solution, was that I would hear accidents. I'd literally be in church in that building, and I would see one happen through the window as another act cars crashed into each other. And probably during my first two or three years here, I saw about three or four accidents. Either I saw them after they'd happened or I actually saw them happen. And I just kept thinking to myself, there is a solution to this problem. These people need to go to England, right? Because in England they have what? Roundabouts, right? Now you would not believe the stir that it caused. Rusty's smiling because he knows that what it stood when people suggested they would have a roundabout. You'd think people would be like, they'd look at the facts, they'd look at the statistics and they'd go, wow. Man, this reduces accidents by about 90%. That's incredible, particularly fatal accidents, because when cars hit each other, they hit like that instead of T-boning each other, right? But the letters you would have seen, the emails you would have seen, the Facebook posts about the disaster that this was going to cause, you would feel like the end of the world was coming on Daniel Island because of this roundabout. Josh Whitley, our local politician, asked me about it. He said, what do you think about it? I said, I think it's a fantastic idea, Josh. You just wait and see. And as we've seen over the last few years, it has reduced. I've never seen an accident there. Maybe you have. I haven't seen one. I know there have been probably one or two there. But they are not fatal, for sure, because of the way that these roundabouts are designed. And actually, to cross over now is much safer than it was before as a pedestrian, which people said wouldn't happen. But it actually happened. It's a much safer place to cross now. It's a system that now works, right? It got figured out over generations, perhaps hundreds of years. It, you know, it took you guys a little longer to catch on than the British, but it does work, all right? Well, Paul has figured out a system that works as well. And I want to just point out this system just briefly, um, and I'm hoping it can help us as we seek to think about, well, how can I share my faith? And the first thing we see in Paul's system is that Paul is someone who wants to meet people where they are. Okay, when he gets to a town, he doesn't go out, stand on a street corner with a bullhorn, right, and say, you better repent, otherwise you're going to be in serious trouble. Okay, now, that might be true, but Paul has a better method, right? He has a better method. His method is, where does he go first? Synagogue, we should know that by now, right? Where does he go first? Yeah, because who are there? Jews, believers, right? People who are interested in the scriptures. They want to know more about who God is. They want to know if the Messiah might be coming. And so they're reading these scriptures. So he thinks, well, that's the place I'm going to head first. So physically, he's meeting people where they are. But he's also meeting them spiritually where they are. He's engaging with them with the questions that they might have about faith. And so he goes to them and he talks to them about the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah's come. He's probably opening the scriptures and saying, hey, look at Psalm 22. All those things that were said to happen to this person, they actually happened in Jesus. Or they might go to Psalm 53 and he would say the same thing. And you could pick tons of scriptures. There are hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfills. And so he goes to them and he starts to engage them in this way. He does the same thing in Athens with non-believers. Yes, he begins where? synagogue, yeah, even in Athens, but there is one there. He then heads to the Areopagus, because that's the place where people debate spiritual matters, and he's invited there. It's not as, again, as if he just heads there and says, here's my bullhorn, I'm going to tell you what I believe. He's invited to go in, and he responds, okay? So he meets people where they are physically and spiritually. And then secondly, what does he always do next once he meets people? What does he talk about? Jesus. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. That should be an easy one in church, right? He talks about Jesus. 
I mean, it sounds obvious, but sometimes when it comes to sharing our faith, we think that we have to have all these fancy ways to do it, right? But all he does is he talks about Jesus and who he is. He has the scriptures, he can share those, and he shares them with people. He is doing that, and he does it persuasively. He uses reason, as we see in verses 2 and 3. He explains, he proves, he proclaims, verse 11, and he helps them as they examine scripture, and he shares the gospel. It's really a very simple thing. The gospel tells us that God loves us. He made us in his image. He created us to be in relationship with him, but we chose to turn our back on him and to make ourselves God with a small g. And as a result, there was the fall. And because of the fall, God sets in motion a rescue plan that we went through uh, all of this past year. Remember that, his uh, his story? We went through that. It began with his people, and then it moved on to Jesus coming. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life among us, that he could be a perfect sacrifice, and that he could die and rise again, be resurrected, that one day we too might be resurrected also. And because of that, you and I can be freed of our sin. Simple as that. It's just the gospel, right? He's sharing the gospel with them through the scriptures. He's proving persuasively who Jesus is. And he also does it powerfully. He's doing it in the power of the Spirit. And how do we know that? Well, Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians. You can go read it for yourself. In fact, there's a couple of letters, one and two. Go home, read through those, and you'll see what he's saying to these Christians that he then leaves Um, after he's left them. And at the beginning of that letter, the first letter to them, since they have formed a church, he says this, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with dunamis, right, from which we get the word dynamite. It came with Holy Spirit power like dynamite, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction as he writes. And because of this combination of persuasiveness and power, many people believe, which brings us to the third thing that happens. They elicit a response. It's meant to elicit a response. And the response can be good or the response can be bad, as we see today in our story, right? First of all, verse 4, if you look at that, it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So there's a good response, right? And we see that again in Berea as well with those noble Jews who, Jews who are willing to, to listen. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, respond to the gospel because the gospel is for everyone. All right. And these people are saved from eternal destruction. And if you notice the story in our gospel reading today that Jesus shared, but there's a place that people will end up if they choose not to follow Jesus. And often that's the really religious people. I don't know if you realize that it's the people who are going to church each Sunday, right? They're the ones who he's going to say, I didn't know you because they didn't have a real relationship with him. It's just a reminder to us that it's about a relationship first and foremost. It's not about keeping our duty of Sunday mornings. It's about being in relationship with Jesus if we want to be saved. Kent Hughes writes this, The noble life had been turned upside down, or more accurately, right side up. There's that phrase upside down, but I love how he says it. It's actually right side up. God's princes and princesses, that's the people in Berea, had their lives revolutionized. They kissed the doctrines that they once despised and now saw themselves and life as it really is. Once their thoughts were devoted to this world, but now they looked upward. 
They had been turned right side up from the life that was leading them in the wrong path. And they were serving another king. You may have caught that. The Jews actually charged them with actually that they are serving a different king. They, they say these people are serving a different king. And the Jews are right about that. These people, these Christians have chosen to follow a different king. You might think, well... You know, I have a president. That's who my allegiance is to. I'm, I'm an American citizen. But ultimately, your allegiance as a believer is not first and foremost to any president. It's to the king of the universe. That's who you serve first and foremost. And at times, those things might conflict. And there's a tough choice you made there. Paul had to make that choice over and over again. And it cost him. It got him put in jail. He suffered for his faith because he knew that he was a citizen of a country far greater than Israel or Rome or Greece, wherever it might be, he was a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. And that's where his allegiance was first. Think about that. Is your allegiance first and foremost to the king or to an earthly king? Well, fourthly, they continued discipling. So remember, they've met people where they are. Okay, They have um, shared the scriptures. They've elicited a response. And now that there's been a response, they have to continue discipling. And what happens is sometimes Paul has to get out of Dodge real quick, right? Because they're trying to kill him, okay? But he often leaves people behind, as we see in our story today. And those people continue to disciple. So where Silas and Timothy stay in Berea, don't they? And so what happens is they're able to disciple these people and get the church going. But then also, they don't just continue discipling where they are. They continue discipling where they are not. And what do I mean? They do eventually move on. All right. They don't just get stuck there in a little holy huddle and say, well, this is it. The gospel is just for Berea. No, the point is they need to keep on going out and taking the gospel elsewhere. And so on they go to Athens because God's love compels them to share the gospel with those who are on a path to destruction. Well, what about us? We need to come inside. What about what are we to make of this story? Well, the first thing is this. Um, if you don't believe in Jesus, I want to ask, are you open to being convinced? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, are you willing to take the time to try and discover, is what Jesus teaches, is it true? And is Jesus who he says he is? Or are you the kind of person who, when it comes to Jesus, you just go, la, 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 don't even want to investigate it. I would challenge you today to be someone who might go and investigate it. What you will discover is that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. Often the charge is uh, thrown at Christians that they just live with blind faith. But if you have chosen to follow Jesus, you are not living with blind faith, friends. There is plenty of evidence to support who Jesus is. You can go look at the scriptures as Paul does and explain rationally why you would believe that A, he existed, and that B, yes, he did truly uh, rise from the dead as the risen son of God. It is a reasonable thing to believe in the Christian faith. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise, okay? Very much so. The second thing, uh, sorry, let me go back, just that, are you open to being convinced? Take the time to find out for yourself, okay? Second thing, once again, the call is for Christians to be outward bound. 
Again, it's not that holy huddle where we stay here and we don't share what we too have been given. Are you living an outward bound kind of love, uh, life? Are you participating in turning the world upside down or right side up, whichever way it might be that you want to talk about it? Are you empowered by the Spirit of God, making disciples as you go, helping others to believe and knowing that there's a system that works, right? You can meet people where they are. It takes the pressure off of it when you realize that, actually, I'm not called to go stand on a street corner probably and just shout with a bullhorn. What I'm meant to do is engage with the people who are already in my life, the people who live next door to my apartment, the people who live on my street, the people who I'm at work with, the people who I go out to the bar with, the people who I play sports with. Those are the people that I'm just being called to engage with and to listen to, looking for the signs when they say to you something and you realize, oh, they've probably got some interest in hearing what I might have to say about my faith right now. Not missing those moments as they come your way, as the Lord puts them into your lap. So where are the places in your life that you could share the gospel? And what are the signs to be looking for? Do you know what to be looking for when someone's sharing with you, okay? Who are the people that God is naturally bringing across your path that you can meet where they are at and share the gospel with in an appropriate response? So let's imagine someone comes to you, it's a next door neighbor, and they say, hey, we just moved to the neighborhood. Can I borrow your your lawnmower? I haven't I, you know, I haven't got a lawnmower yet. I just moved here. And you go, that's wonderful. But did you know you're on a path to eternal destruction? <laughs> Would you just get down on your knees right now and pray for repentance and that God will save you? And then I'll lend you my lawnmower, right? That's Rusty's method, but I don't advise that, okay? <laughs> not at all. I'm someone who's borrowed Rusty's lawnmower, and he did not do that to me. Um, no, if someone comes to you and asks you for help, maybe you just say, yeah, I'd love to help you. And you just give them the lawnmower and say, sure, you can borrow it whenever you want, okay? Happened to me, um, uh, I play pickup soccer about once or twice a week, and I've been doing that for about, gosh, eight, nine, ten years now. And after about five years, it took that long, a guy came up to me and said, hey, you're the pastor at Holy Cross, aren't you? And I said, yep, yeah, I'm a pastor there. And he said, look, I'm having some issues in my marriage, and I'd really love your help. Would you be willing to meet with me and actually meet with my wife as well, and we can talk together just about that? And you know what? I didn't say, hey, get down on your knees now and repent, because I know you're not a believer. I said, sure, let's get together. And you just never know what will come of that. Guess what came of that? His wife became a believer. He didn't, but he, uh, she became a believer. All because of that one saying, yep, I'll meet with you. So maybe it's just saying, I'll help you. We'll lead to something more. Maybe it's a simple invitation. Just this week, I was at Rotary. I know some of my fellow Rotarians out there. Um, and we have a breakfast meeting every week. And at the end of the meeting, I was just trying to get out the door, basically. I saw a guy, and I, I said hello to him. And, he, and we started talking about the summer. He said, yeah, you know, this past summer, I've just been getting back into sort of more spiritual things. Ding, 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 right? Could say, hey, that's great. I got to go, right? No, no, no. I, I paused for a moment and I said, well, that's great. So, you know, have you thought about going to a church, you know? Welcome to come to us. Yeah, what time are the services? would love to come. I'm going to come check it out, all right? And so just a moment in that where I can offer an invitation. Very simple, okay? Where are those moments happening in your life? Are you willing to invite someone out for a meal? Does anybody here eat? All right? We got a few people. That's great. Excellent. 
guess what? So do those people. They eat too. You could invite them out for a meal. Why not just invite, start with that if you're scared about saying, you know, the, the Sunday morning worship thing, all right? But or you could invite them to Sunday morning worship. You can invite them to your life group if you have one. If you don't, it's time to get in one, people. I've been saying it for about seven years. Let's all get in a life group, right? Please. Uh, commission weekend is coming up. We've been talking about this in our sermon series. Uh, we're going to have, and you may not know this yet, but with the first evening, the dinner is going to be at New Realm right here on Daniel Island. How easy is that to invite someone to, right? Four till seven, I think it is. Invite them, pay for their ticket, and say, come with me. Okay, simple as that. And it could just be an easy way to engage with the church body. Grief share is starting in about 10 days. Ed's going to be leading that. Uh, just invite someone to grief share, even if you're not going to go yourself, but maybe they've just lost a loved one. Say, hey, you should really come to this fantastic program I've heard about for people who are grieving. There are different ways you can invite, okay? And then the third thing is maybe it is right and appropriate to share the good news. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was meeting with someone who's going through a crisis. And as I sat and I listened to them, this is someone I've known for years now, not just a, you know, like a first time meeting. They said some stuff to me and I said, well, here's what I know. You need Jesus. It was the right time, right? And I engaged with them in the right way at the right time. So there's the different levels. Do you see what I mean? Different ways you can engage with someone. You've got to learn to discern. And I think Paul is really good at that. You know, the final thing I want to ask us as a body um, and I want to challenge you this week, I think, first of all, is to, to engage in that way with people, to be thinking, who is God bringing into my path this week where I can either help them, I can invite them, or I can share the gospel with them, okay? Real simple. Is it a help? Is it an invite? Is it a share in the gospel, okay? So be looking for that this week, all right? And if you're not a believer yet, I want to challenge you to go out and start examining the reasonableness, the rationality of the Christian faith, okay, for yourself. And I'm glad to help you with that, as are others. But the final thing I want to ask is, are we the church turning the world upside down? Is that something we're doing? Okay. There's a great quote I read this week, and I want you to see if you can guess who said this. Uh, It goes like this. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. We saw that today, right? But they went on with the conviction that they were, listen to this phrase, a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought to an end such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Any, anyone want to guess who said that? That's a great guess. That is a great guess. But I'm not Kendall Harmon. So <laughs> he always quotes C.S. Lewis. Uh, I think 1960s. Martin Luther King wrote those words. He was in jail at the time. And guess who he was writing to? Pastors. Pastors in that town who were not willing to support him as he sought to bring the gospel um, through bringing an end to racism, right? 
It's a it's it's a word that still speaks or holds true today, even 60 years later, I think, is are we becoming a social club, weak and ineffectual, or are we actually turning the world upside down as we seek to go into the broken places of our world, the broken people of our world as well, and actually offer them life and hope and all that the gospel has to offer that can bring healing where they're seeking it in all the wrong places. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of, and I hope you do too as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come help us. We need your spirit like those first apostles. Uh, We need your spirit to help us. And we know that if we have your spirit, we can do the same things they did, Lord Jesus. And we'll be a part of seeing healing come to a broken world. Those broken relationships that are all around us. Those people struggling with addictions. Those people on a path to destruction, Lord Jesus. Apart from you. So come and move in our hearts and help us to share this reasonable faith with others. To be ready to do so persuasively and powerfully that they might come to a saving knowledge of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.